0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 Briefing for Alberta on Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. We are live-streaming today from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis and Inuit who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations and who continuously strive to build a healthy and prosperous future for all who call this land home. Today's briefing has a live captioner in place for increased accessibility. Additionally, it is being simulcast to the Alberta Activist Collective's YouTube channel in ASL. We are hopeful that this will improve the accessibility of our briefings for all Albertans. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 Briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavour to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta, and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans, attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. In addition to our daily COVID-19 analysis for Alberta, we will focus today's briefing on airborne transmission and take questions from the media and viewers. With us today, we have Dr. Joe Vipond, Calgary Emergency Room Physician, Dr. Nija Bakshi, Edmonton Internal Medicine Doctor, Dr. Goja Gasparovic, Calgary-based Developmental Biologist, and Connor Riziki, Edmonton-based Ph.D. candidate and Killam scholar focused on aerosol science and technology. We will begin with Dr. Vipond's daily analysis.
1: Dr. Vipond?
2: I can fix that. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We'll start over. We're still ironing out some kinks, obviously, uh, but it's great to, to be able to, to present this information to you. Um, so uh, we have two days of data to present, although I'm just really going to focus on the last 24 hours. Uh, if you want to see yesterday's data briefing, I suggest you go to t- Twitter and look at uh, Aaron Toombs or Robson Fletcher's. Or Zaid Faidas um, or myself, um, uh, uh, who all do great analysis. And I'm pretty excited to say that uh, uh, Zaid, uh, Zaid is coming to join us on Friday to to do the numbers. So you have a little bit of a variety of uh, of um, perspectives on things. You don't just have uh, my perspective. So that's um, that's just get things out of the way. Uh, as far as the last 24 hours, uh, yesterday there was 1347. Um, COVID uh, cases um, that tested positive. That's a new uh, Delta wave record. Um, So in a 26% increase over last week's uh, numbers, last Monday's numbers, sorry, Tuesday's numbers. Um, Overall, the seven day average uh, is at 1,085 and it continues to climb at a a really um, uh, frightening 49% rate uh, week over week. The doubling time is about 13.5 days, which is similar to the the last uh, week or so where it's kind of been going between 13 and 14 days. Um, Can you go to the next slide? I'm not sure if I have control over that, uh, Michelle. So, yeah, just go back one. That's that percent positivity. And you can see how steep the uh, the increase is there over the last uh, few weeks. And you can move forward again. We're going to uh, look at the percent positivity on the next slide. And uh, you can see it's it's climbing steeply. It's been pretty consistently 2% increase week over week. So uh, uh, yesterday being 11.1% versus nine point one one percent the week before. So it pretty much it bang on two percent. And that's another frightening thing because it means we're missing a lot of cases out there in the community. Next, slide, please. Um, this is uh, just highlighting the north zone. Yesterday, they hit an incredible thirty three percent, thirty two point six percent percent positivity. We haven't seen a number like that in any region at any time uh, during the pandemic. So I just wanna highlight how bad things are up in the North. Next slide, please. Um, this is Delta. I, I like to look at the Delta uh, percent a day over, um, like the percent of Delta over the day's numbers just to, to make sure we're not missing any new variants. Um, and it's consistently around 89 and, and 90%. Um, and, and so the most recent data we have for that is the 26th and the 27th of August. Next slide, please. Okay, here's here's where um, where things really get out of hand. Um, our inpatient hospitalizations on Monday were up twenty one to three hundred and thirty four, and yesterday we're up twenty four to three hundred and fifty eight. Those are a- extremely steep climbs. Uh, we've had a fifty four percent increase um, over the last week. From I, I, I'm using Monday's numbers, so from Monday to Monday, a fifty four percent climb from uh, 217 to 334. And you can see how steep that climb is and how persistent it is. It's just endless. ICU see uh, um yesterday. Sorry, on Monday was up nine, which was an incredibly high jump from uh, uh, to 106. And then yesterday, a little bit less steep, uh, only up one to 107. But overall, in the last seven days to yesterday, we've had an 81% increase in um, in our numbers. And that means we're at a nine day doubling time that's slightly slower than the day before, which was an eight day doubling time. So if we just look at this um, at 107 and do some quick calculations, I'm just going to do this in my head. So if we're doubling on the 10th of September, we'll uh, if these trends continue, we'll be at 214. On the 19th of September, we'll be at 428 um, ICU cases and um, what I'm hearing from ICU doctors and nurses and some of the data that I've been seeing on Twitter is that our ICUs are full now, Um, which where are we going to put these people like if we actually go from 107 COVID ICU patients today and we continue to double at this rate and we like and we're full today like where do they go these this this um just to point this out again um the the last time we were at similar cases per day um so our average being um uh 1085 you can check this on the, the stats website was on november 21st um and i always like i like to compare it with the second wave because it's the last wave where we kind of started at zero um, and actually, if you go to the next slide, you can see this. Um, and on that day, on November twenty-first, we had two hundred ninety-four inpatients compared to today. We have three hundred fifty-eight. So you can see uh, a moderate uh, um, uh, increase in our in our hospitalization numbers compared to the the second wave. But incredibly, the ICU rate was 62 patients on November 21st and as I said, 107 today. So this is not a defanged virus thanks to vaccines. This is Delta, which is an incredibly difficult beast to manage and it's really having an impact on our society. Um, Our last slide here is the the deaths announced yesterday and my condolences to all the family members, uh, all the people, um, who are impacted by these deaths, and a total of eight deaths announced yesterday. And you can see the, the statistics there as to the location and to the ages. And all of this will be put on my Twitter feed later today. Um, I just want to acknowledge that uh, the images that I've taken here have been um, stolen uh, explicitly from Alberta Health and public website from Aaron Toombs. Uh, public website and from Robson Fletcher's um, CBC public website. So thank you to those people who have shared that. I'm just going to say one more thing before we move on to our our other panelists. The way I think about COVID is we actually, there are four different things that define COVID from other diseases. I think the thing that comes to mind most frequently is, is its uh, impact, right? So there's Uh, you know, significant mortality uh, associated with this significant um, hospitalizations in ICU compared to other diseases like uh, influenza. Um, So that's the thing that most people think about. But there's three other things I want you to think about. The next is that there are there's evidence of long COVID, which means um, 10 to 30 percent of adults and eight to 13 percent of kids have a long term impact post the acute phase of the illness, which means anything from brain fog to um, which essentially is cognitive impairment, the loss of taste and smell to chronic shortness of breath, chronic chest pain, um, fatigue. Uh, and, and, and that's also quite different from other illnesses. Um, the third thing which I want to point out is asymptomatic spread. It's very easy uh, for somebody with influenza to not go out in public because they feel like crap Uh, And they lie in bed and they don't infect anybody. Well, they don't, they do infect people, but they don't tend to infect as many people as the COVID patients who about 50% of people uh, who get COVID will get it from either an asymptomatic or a pre-symptomatic patient. That means people with zero symptoms. So we can't rely on those cues. Um, And, um, We can't rely on on, somebody sneezing or coughing um, or them feeling unwell to keep them from going into social situations. And that's why this transmission is so difficult to to hold. And that's why contact tracing is so important. Um, And finally, the last thing is um, uh, airborne transmission. been evident for quite a while that uh, the main way that this virus is transmitted is through airborne transmission. Um, And that's why we're focusing on this today, because airborne transmission means we have to do specific things. If it was contact droplet, what we really need to do is, um, you know, clean surfaces and and uh, and physically distanced. But with airborne transmission, there's a whole other set of mitigation measures that come into play. And that's why we have Connor Riziki, um, who's speaking to you on that today. I'm so happy to have him here. He's a super smart guy. Um, that ends my, uh, ask, um, my part of the briefing today. I'm uh, turning it back over to Michelle.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. I would like to reintroduce Connor Riziki, PhD candidate and Killam scholar focused on aerosol science and technology to share some information about COVID-19, its airborne transmission, and what we can do to help keep ourselves and our communities
3: safe. Uh, thank you, Michelle and Dr. Vipond. Uh, Michelle, if you can bring up the slides. Um, I'd also like to thank the rest of the group involved here for this grassroots efforts to bring information to Albertans. Quite honored to have the opportunity to talk today about airborne transmission and COVID-19. Obviously, I recognize I have only a limited amount of time and i really only be able to scratch the surface of this important topic, but what I want to start to do is to help demystify exactly what we mean when we talk about airborne transmission, provide a few of the best practices that people can start to use to help mitigate the risk of this transmission occurring in different places, and identify a few resources for people who may be interested in finding more information. So when we talk about airborne transmission, we first have to talk about aerosols. And aerosols are just a term uh, that is used to describe small particles in the air that tend to stick around uh, rather than fall quickly to the ground. And because these aerosols tend to stick around in the air, we can actually inhale them into our airways. And depending on their size, they can end up landing in different parts of our lungs, in our throat, our mouth, or our nose. And the first thing we need to realize about airborne transmission is that all of us actually produce aerosols when we do any number of activities like talking, singing, coughing, sneezing, and exercising. These aerosols that we produce are themselves made out of respiratory fluid and saliva and anything that's actually contained within those fluids. So if you happen to be infected with SARS-CoV-2 and you're shedding virus, the aerosol that you emit from your mouth or nose can contain live viruses. And because aerosols tend to stick around in the air, if you emit aerosol-containing live virus into a space, others who are sharing that space with you may inhale that virus themselves and end up becoming infected. One area of confusion with airborne transmission is that uh, there's an idea that it occurs only over long distances. But what we now understand is that inhalation of aerosol occurs both in close proximity to the person who's emitting it. And it can also occur over longer distances and circumstances where you have uh, where your ventilation isn't good enough to actually prevent the buildup of aerosol over time. And a very useful mental model for thinking about how these aerosols behave is actually the behavior of cigarette smoke and how that can build up over time in enclosed spaces. Obviously, that buildup of cigarette smoke increases your risk of exposure indoors. And something similar, something very similar, happens with SARS-CoV-2 that is contained in bioaerosols. Next slide. Now with COVID-19, we have seen a change in our understanding of transmission over the past several months and both the CDC and the World Health Organization have concluded that inhalation of aerosol is important both in close proximity to an infected emitter and over longer distances when ventilation is poor. So many of us aerosol scientists actually uh, conject that airborne transmission is by far the most important way that COVID-19 spreads But either way, uh, we know that airborne transmission occurs frequently and that we do need to begin to implement measures to prevent it if we want to try to control transmission. And two small notes before we move on to talking about mitigating transmission. The first is that the delta variant that is driving this fourth wave is much more transmissible than earlier variants, as I believe Dr. Gasparovic will be talking about shortly. And that makes it all the more important to use all the tools that we have available right now to keep a lid on transmission. And secondly, as Joe noted, um, people who are infected with SARS-CoV-2 but not displaying symptoms of COVID-19 can and do transmit the disease to others, and this needs to be considered when determining what are and what are not useful mitigation measures. Next slide. So when it comes to mitigating transmission of this virus, a very useful way to think about this is the Swiss cheese model. The key with this model is to recognize that no single layer of mitigation is perfect. But we can vastly reduce the risk of transmission occurring in different scenarios when we begin to layer up individual actions like physical distancing and masks, together with shared actions and responsibilities like good testing, tracing, and isolating, uh, improving ventilation, implementing air filtration, and widespread vaccinations. And some of these layers can themselves be improved to make them more effective for, by example, educating the public on how to wear a mask properly and upgrading to better quality masks, a little bit of which I'll talk about later. And while we're very fortunate to have widespread access to vaccines that do do a very remarkable job in reducing severe outcomes we also need to recognize right now in our current situation that vaccines alone are not preventing this fourth wave of the delta variant without the use of other public health measures so i think it's quite a good sign and i'm actually very encouraged to see that municipalities like edmonton are stepping up to reinstate mass mandates uh, because we absolutely know that masks are an effective tool to help mitigate transmission, especially when they're used by more and more people. Next slide. So let's talk about some of the things that we can do to reduce the chances of airborne transmission occurring in different environments. The first and one of the best ways is probably the most obvious, which is to simply get fully vaccinated and to vaccinate as many people as possible. So vaccination works extremely well in reducing the risks of severe outcomes and does help to reduce the odds of getting sick in the first place. But as with any layer of protection, we know there's still a possibility of people who are fully vaccinated becoming infected and in transmitting the disease to others. This is why it is still very beneficial to implement universal masking indoors when we have considerable community transmission and to educate people on how to use masks properly. With maskings, we want to, with with masking, we want to think about three different factors, which is the fit of the mask to the face, the filtration ability of the material that the mask is made out of and the comfort of the mask itself. So at this point in the pandemic, there are actually several options for members of the public to invest and upgrade to respirators like N95s and KN95s. And these carry the benefit of being rigorously designed and tested to satisfy all three of those fit, filtration, and comfort criteria. And therefore, they can help provide the wearer a very high degree of protection. I do want to reiterate that any mask is better than no mask, but we do, now how, how, uh, we do now have options for those looking for a higher degree of protection. And beyond masking, the realization of the importance of airborne transmission allows us to look at ventilation as a protective layer as well. So with ventilation, the aim is to bring in fresh air to indoor spaces and to properly re, uh, filter recycled air to help reduce the risks of the buildup of virus-laden aerosol over time. The American Society of uh, Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers has actually released guidelines to optimize existing infra- existing infrastructure to this effect. And ASHRAE, um, this, this organization, has also released a very strong position statement that uh, states that airborne transmission of this disease is significant and should be controlled. This statement was also recently acknowledged and reinforced by our own provisional, uh, Provincial Professional Engineering Association, APEGA, uh, a few weeks ago, And this makes it very clear that there is an important role for engineers to play here in addressing this problem. And at present, and in light of the increased transmissibility of the Delta variant, the current recommended target for ventilation is six effective air changes per hour in locations like classrooms. It should be noted that this actually exceeds, in many cases, the minimum standards that were laid out prior to the pandemic, as such standards were typically not derived with the mitigation of an airborne pathogen in mind. Next slide. We can also begin to start triaging our current infrastructure by using simple methods like carbon dioxide measurements, since CO2 measurements can give us an idea of how good the ventilation is in an occupied space. Now, CO2 measurements give you an idea of the quality of ventilation, but they do not capture the risk of transmission occurring over short distances. So it's very important to continue masking and to maintain social distancing where possible, regardless of what the level of CO2 is in a space. But that being said, When CO2 levels begin to exceed about 1,000 parts per million, that's an indication that the quality of the ventilation in a space is poor, and additional measures like in-room filtration should be implemented to help mitigate the build of aerosols. There are also some very simple fixes here that we can be doing, like opening doors and windows. But such such methods are actually weather dependent and cannot be relied upon um, as we're moving into the winter months. Another useful layer of protection is in the form of in-room filtration for spaces where ventilation is suboptimal. And indeed, this is a measure that is advocated for by ASHRAE. Though there are a number of factors involved in the selection of these technologies that make it a good idea to follow experts on on these topics for up-to-date guidance. There are several HEPA air purifiers on the market, so we're fortunate to have comparisons from independent researchers that can be used to guide the selection of a HEPA purifier that is right for the situation. And along these lines, there are actually a number of experts that have also designed what are known as Corsi-Rosenthal boxes, which are essentially essentially homemade in-room filters. But because of the optimization of the components and the design that has gone into them, many of these can actually provide quite good performance, in some cases better than commercial pro- products and for much cheaper. And finally. Upper room germicidal ultraviolet light is another proven technology that has been used to great effect in mitigating the transmission of airborne diseases like tuberculosis. And this may be a really great option for many situations with SARS-CoV-2 as well. The last tool that I won't really mention too much, but I'll just note briefly, is actually rapid testing, which of course can help to identify people infected with COVID-19 who may be unwillingly spreading the disease to others. Next slide. So now that I've briefly mentioned some of the best practices, I want to identify a few things to avoid. Uh, The first is what is known as hygiene and filtration theater, uh, where we essentially devote resources to things that really don't do much in preventing the transmission of SARS-CoV-2, and in some cases may actually have unintended side effects. This can include things like deep cleaning, um, using chemical foggers, and unproven air cleaning technologies that use buzzwords, uh, things like ozone catalyzers and bipolar ionization. Uh, and these technologies have been flagged by indoor air quality experts as unproven and potentially harmful. So this idea of hygiene infiltration theater can also include the use of an improperly sized HEPA cleaner for a given space, such that it actually has a negligible impact on mitigating risks associated with the build of aerosol. Another thing to think about is that with deep cleaning, if we're going to be deep cleaning a building after an outbreak has already occurred, this really won't be addressing the root causes of the outbreak and so it likely won't be preventing future outbreaks from happening at all so in my opinion we need to be more diligent with our use of resources when we're actually starting to fight this disease another thing that we know now is that there are certain things that aren't helpful uh, like the overly overly liberal use of plexiglass um, because the force of plexiglasses that have sometimes been put in place in, in an attempt to reduce um, what we thought of was the most important thing of being droplets uh, this actually impedes effective ventilation of these sorts of indoor environments, and can hamper the effective removal of infectious aerosols. So, for that reason, it is not a good idea to be using um, uh, plexiglass in in a lot of different scenarios. And we should also, where possible, be avoiding indoor gatherings without masks, and consider moving outdoors for breaks and lunch as well, weather allows. A good practice is to stagger breaks and to make sure to evaluate ventilation of break rooms because this can help to reduce the chances of transmission events occurring in these sorts of environments where we often let down our guard and maybe remove our masks to have a bit of a bite to eat or drink. Next slide. And finally, I'd like to recognize uh, I'd like to identify a number of useful resources for people who are interested in finding out more information. So I recognize that we've covered a lot of ground in the past few minutes, and I've really only scratched the surface but I would encourage those who have questions to look into some of the resources I've provided here. So these include a conference held a few weeks ago that actually brought together many of the leading experts in aerosol science and indoor air quality for tips and methods to reduce airborne transmission in schools. And I believe this Friday, we'll have a few panelists talking about that as well. And also the U.S. CDC's guidance on mitigating transmission in the wider community. And for those who are looking for a bit more of a scientific discussion, there's also a really great article that came out last week in Science It dives into more of the details on airborne transmission and it provides a really good summary. So
4: with that, thank you for your time and attention. um, And I'll turn things back to Michelle.
1: Thank you very
0: much, Connor. I actually had a couple of questions if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Sure, yep. Okay, so if Michelle is a human here who is not an aerosol scientist, is going to take three
3: things home today from that. What are they gonna be? The things I would take home today are avoid unnecessary indoor gatherings right now. Um, If you do have to be indoors with others, continue masking at all times, just because you're two meters away from somebody else does not mean you are safe from inhaling aerosol emitted by those people. And probably the last one is that we should really start to begin evaluating ventilation in the different sorts of spaces that we're spending a lot of our time indoors. And is this a point in time where
0: I should be looking at moving away from cloth masks and surgical masks if I can afford to go to an N95?
3: Yes, if you can, it's not a bad idea to go toward those better performing masks. They'll provide the wearer with more protection. And we've actually seen a number of Canadian suppliers stand up and begin supplying these to members of the public outside of healthcare worker environments. so we do have the supply of these masks available. If you're able to afford them, I would encourage you to move on toward that sort of better functioning mask.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. or Connor Rizicki, PhD candidate for joining us. Um, I am exceptionally thankful that you took the time today to be with us. And I know that this is going to be an ongoing conversation. Um, And yeah, thank you so very much for joining us. It is with great pleasure that I now get to introduce Dr. Gozia Gasparovitz to join us and further our conversation today as we deepen our understanding and what we can do going forward after what feels like a really, really long 18 months.
1: Good afternoon. Uh, Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Dr. Vaipant for introduction and organizing the Uh, The briefing. Uh, I would like to share the screen. Um, Okay,
0: is it visible already? Goja, are you wanting to share the screen or do you want me to share the screen? Uh, Yes,
1: I I would like to share the screen.
0: Okay, it is not visible yet. Let's try one more time. Um, Okay.
1: and you see it now?
0: We cannot. Why don't I share what you sent with me earlier today? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Just one second.
1: Okay, so I think it's almost working now. Could you, Michel? Could you please make a full screen of it, like so? Okay, thank you. Uh, so I would like to talk about the spread of spread dynamics of COVID in Alberta, and this is short term projection. Uh, daily new cases are doubling. Are are growing exponentially the doubling time is 14 days right now and if we don't do if you don't do anything if we don't put any public health measures in place we will reach 2000 daily new cases around mid-september and that's the level 2000 daily case cases is the level when our ICUs were full in the third wave. The cases didn't decouple uh, from hospitalizations and ICUs in Alberta. The proportion is the same or even a little bit higher than it was in the uh, in the third wave. Could I have next slide please? So this slide shows, that's the graph that shows it's a logarithmic graph. On the y-axis we have um, multiples of two, so it's 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, so anything that is makes straight line on the exponent, on logarithmic graph means it's exponential growth. Black is uh, daily cases, red hospitalizations, and blue are ICUs, and we can see that they all grow exponentially, they are not decoupled, uh, and the growth of, actually the growth of hospitalizations and ICUs is faster than it was in the third wave. So now the doubling time is around 12 days. In the third wave, the doubling time of hospitalizations and ICUs was three weeks. So we definitely need to do something, need to implement some public health measures to stop this growth. Next slide, please. So that's the... Graph borrowed from Robson Fletcher uh, from CBC. Uh, so encourage everybody to follow him on Twitter at CBC Fletch. He has uh, really excellent uh, reporting on COVID, COVID numbers and COVID graphs every day. This graph shows um, hospitalization, like, like ICUs, o- uh, ICU occupancy and ICU um, threshold level. So the capacity the typical capacity is like blue line here blue dotted line the uh, 170 uh can we go back thank you um and in the third wave in the middle we can see that covid cases took almost all the capacity so what we have is the it's kind of credit mode or debt mode what is happening in the hospitals normally Sorry, I don't have a pointer here, but normally COVID cases are the minority in ICUs. When we are in the wave, we have to do some, like people have to be moved, like patients are moved. The the elective surgeries are postponed. So we will need to pay it in the future. So these people will need to be operated later in the future and create that will create a backlog. And we are reaching this level right now as well. Next slide, please. So one thing I wanted to really stress is that the growth in cases, growth in growth in hospitalizations, growth in ICUs that we see was predictable already in May. Like just that's my slide that I had that I made on May 24th. So knowing very little about Delta, but when we knew that Delta is 40% more transmissible than Alpha and that two times more transmissible transmissible than original variant, it was absolutely possible to predict the current wave, the current delta wave that eventually, if we don't take measure, if measures, if we don't stamp it out, it will resurface and grow exponentially, very, very rapidly. And that's exactly what is happening right now. So this wave is absolutely predictable. But, next slide please. What was also predictable then, but didn't happen, was that in May we had really amazing decline, like the R-value was 0.66, so it was halving every five, six days. So if we would just continue what we've been doing and keeping vaccinated pe- vaccinating people, we could stop all community transmission by end of July and probably with vaccinate, ongoing vaccination, it probably could happen even faster. So basically we would have normal, at least internally in Alberta, we could have normalcy back. And we wouldn't have the fourth wave, the fourth Delta wave that we see now. So just gradual reopening would would prevent what 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 we see now. Um, okay, but it didn't happen. So now I will talk what what we can do a little bit about uh, how much more transmissible Delta is. So next slide, please. Uh, that's a picture from the article in BBC uh, article, and it illustrates quite well the concept of R0. So R0 tells us how many people on average, one infected person would infect when there is no public health measure and nobody is vaccinated. So for original variant that was here in the fir- first wave, the R0 was three. Now then it increased for alpha because we let, we let the COVID spread so it could mutate, it could evolve to a faster one and the selective pressure is to be faster. Uh, So alpha, R value R0 was four to five, and delta R0 is five to eight. So around twice more transmissible than original variant. So what it makes, what it means in practice is, one thing is that now the herd immunity only by vaccination is basically impossible. Now to control it, we need both public health measures and vaccines. Next slide, please. So this is uh, par- partially theoretical, par- partially practical thing uh, model from for original variant that original strain that R zero was which R zero was three. If we would have if we would vaccinate seventy five percent of total population that pink line uh, and have ninety three percent vaccine efficiency against transmission, then we could bring R zero from three by not doing anything else just by vaccinating we could bring R0 from three to just below one, to 0.9, and that it would, that would start reducing the spread. What we observed in the first wave, in many jurisdictions, including Alberta, that with combination of public health measures only, without vaccines, with original strain, we were able to reduce R to 0.6, 0.7, which reduced growth very, very quickly, so reduced the spread very, very quickly. If a year ago we would have vaccines, then com- combining both public health measures, so the blue line with the vaccines would result in a green line here. So very quick reduction in cases, basically pandemic could be over in two weeks then, but we didn't have vaccines back then. We let COVID spread, we let it mutate, we let it evolve and we generate. it generated Delta variant. Next slide, please. And Delta variant has the trans R zero around twice higher, so six. So our pink, the pink line that was just with vaccines only for original variant could make the could get us to herd immunity and controlling the spread only with vaccines. Now it's impossible. It's if vaccines are 60% efficient against transmission, so. To be clear, we don't know exactly what is the eff- effectiveness of vaccines against transmission, but 60% is in, in the range. Uh, and we would have 64% total population vaccinated. Currently, it's 59% in, in Alberta. Then we we would be able to bring down R0 from R from 6 to 3.7, so still very strong exponential growth. But again, it would be just if we would have zero public health measures, vaccines only. If we would vaccinate with zero public health measures, 85% of total population, so everybody, and if vaccine would be 60% efficient, then R would be two, effective, R would be 2.9. If we would use public health measures like in the first wave with this more transmissible variant, still R would be quite high; it would be 1.2, so we would still have a growth. But if we combine both, we can so both vaccines and public health measures, we can still control Delta. We could result; we could have as a result this green line, so bringing R zero R value below one and reducing the spread. And actually, that's what's happening now in. In New Zealand, they had a Delta outbreak, they still have Delta outbreak, and they managed to halt the exponential growth just within last three days, having just 24% of total population vaccinated. So with strong public health measures, and even with limited vaccinations, they were able to halt it. They didn't stop it yet. It doesn't go rapidly down yet, but it's halted. And, And I think that's a positive news for us because we have so they have 24% population fully vaccinated we have in alberta 59% of total population f- fully vaccinated so we are in much better place if we add public health measures to it to control the delta and especially if we if we become serious about mitigating mitigating airborne transmission we can really get it under control so thank you very much I think our host is muted. I'm sorry, we have some technical difficulties. Uh, I don't know if our host can
4: connect.
0: Hello, can you hear and see me now? Maybe for a little bit, as I met panically, was trying to make things function the way they were supposed to. Um, Dr. Gaspers, what
1: can we do? We need need to do everything we can. So use every tool we have in our toolbox. So basically, avoid any... The best would be to ban... Any large gatherings, so people don't spread the virus and limit travel. The good thing, okay, I, I talk as, as myself now. Um, the previously not having in-person schools for several weeks really helped to have cases lower so at least halt a little bit until we bend the care curve with opening in-person schools maybe opening only for people who necessarily need it and then we need to have like very serious airborne mitigation trans like control so if we could wear now mandate masks but not only mandate the masks any masks but really where the N95 type, KN95 type respirators and higher, and everybody, not only adults, but, but also kids, be really cautious about gathering insights, so not make any unnecessary gatherings inside, that could, that could potentially lower, lower the transmission. Thank you so
0: very much for being with us okay. today and bringing your expertise and your time to this really important conversation that. Or
4: maybe one, I... more, one more
1: point like really focusing on vaccinating uh, places where there is high spread so, and vaccinating rural parts of Alberta where the vaccination levels are, are very small. So if we would have this targeted vaccinations that could that could really help. Sorry.
0: No, please do not apologize. It is such an excellent opportunity for us to be able to have these conversations and field some of the questions, not just from the media, but from citizens of Alberta who haven't had a lot of opportunity to really deepen their understanding even over the last 18 months. So many things have not been openly discussed. There has not been a level of transparency that I know has made me as a mom feel safe in my day-to-day existence so having this time with you today is truly a gift so thank you so very much
4: thank you very much
0: operator are you on the call i have no idea But we will move on to some questions from our stream. I would like to reintroduce Connor Rizicki, Dr. Nija Bakshi, and Dr. Vipond to take some questions from the folks who are watching. I have a question from... Oh, from Ashley. um, Around elective surgeries. Have elective surgeries been cancelled at this point or is all of that still up in the air? Uh,
4: I can take that question. Thanks, Michelle. And thank you, Ashley, for that question. We do know that uh, capacity in hospitals is uh, problematic at the moment both for ICU as well as ward capacity uh, for physical space and for nursing care and the skilled nursing that we require for um, ICU level care. Uh, We do know that um, from a statement from AHS last weekend that uh, there were going to be looking at postponements for elective procedures We do know that emergency surgeries and cancer-related surgeries will continue as as planned. Uh, And speaking from what we are seeing within the hospitals, we are starting to see more and more uh, surgical beds being opened up for isolation capacity for non-surgical patients. So um, we can certainly look look at the next couple of days at seeing more elective procedures being canceled or postponed.
0: Thank you so very much. Um, I would love to take another question from our stream over here, if anyone is game. Um, Someone has raised a question, Margaret, of the fact that 17% of those who are currently hospitalized with COVID-19 are fully vaccinated. And so there's a question around what do we know about these humans? Um, Is it vaccines waning? Is it underlying medical concerns? Is it something that we are yet to uncover? Is it just Delta? Dr. Vipond?
2: I can touch on this, Um, although I'm not an expert at this, and we certainly haven't had the the full data revealed from, um, from Alberta Health Services. What I can say from my knowledge is that the percent of vaccinated patients in the ICU is much, much lower than those in the in the in, the in And we are also seeing good protection from vaccines for mortality. So vaccines are amazing. They're really important at decreasing the most severe outcomes of covid, um, which is death and, and uh, intensive care uh maybe not as good at uh hospitalizations and we really don't know about long COVID. i i, I don't know if dr Bakshi's seen anything but i haven't seen anything about long COVID and double vaccinated um, yet. So that'll be really important information to, to get. Um, I think what this emphasizes a couple of things, vaccines are important for for avoiding those most severe outcomes, but also they're not hundred percent. So what we really require people to do is that Swiss cheese model that, uh, that uh, uh, has been referred to today um, and those layers of mitigation, including vaccinations, but not excluding everything else is what's gonna protect people from getting sick.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. We also have a question from Anne Marie that touches on something I was curious about earlier. Anne Marie says, if you can't afford an N95 mask or can't find them, is double masking something one should do or shouldn't?
3: Yeah, I can take that question.
0: Thank you very much, Connor.
3: Um, so the, the their, uh, N95 mask is, is sort of the ideal situation, but there are many things you can do uh, absent N95s that can give you a little bit more protection from your sort of typical cloth mask. Um, double masking is something that can be done. Uh, my preferred way to think about double masking is to actually combine a surgical mask and a cloth mask. So um, what that allows you to do is, is you know, surgical masks, actually uh, ones that are ASTM rated, Uh, So look for an ASTM rating on them. They actually do contain a layer on the inside that that can filter out aerosol particles quite effectively. The problem typically with surgical masks is that you tend to have large gaps around the side of them. That means when you're inhaling and exhaling through them, you're not really breathing through that material. You're more so breathing around it. So in terms of double masking, what what can be done with a surgical mask is to put a surgical mask on first and then a tight, like a nicely tight-fitting cloth mask over top of that. And that can actually help you to breathe a lot more through the surgical mask than you would be otherwise, and provide yourself with a lot more protection. So that is certainly one way that can be done it. Uh, The CDC has done a study on that, and it looks like it's a fairly effective way of getting a little bit more protection for yourself. So I would encourage that as a good way to do it.
0: Thank you so very much, Connor. Mm -hmm. Um, That is really great to know. So I have a question, sort of a follow-up on that. If I'm wearing a cloth mask, Or if I am wearing like a surgical mask and, you know, I've done the little loopy things or I've got one of those things to help me in the back, should it breathe in when I breathe in and then push back out when I exhale? Like what degree of tightness do I want to have?
3: You don't want it to be uncomfortable on your face. Um, So you don't really want to be retching these things over top of of your mouth. Um, You want this to be comfortable to wear for a long duration of time. Ideally, you're wearing this when you're indoors at this point in time, right? Um, But the the whole goal is to be, is to make it so that as much as possible, you're breathing through that material and not around it. Um, So from that point of view, you know, you want to be limiting any big major gaps that you are, they're fairly obvious on surgical masks that you haven't made those sorts of little tiny fixes to. You just want to be avoiding that sort of thing. You know, if you can feel um, a, a big blast of air coming out of a certain part of the mask, then you know that you don't have a good seal. So be on the lookout for that sort of thing.
0: Thank you very much. Before we say goodbye for today, I would like to take one more question from our streamers out there. Um, There we go. Um, Megan has asked, how much safer is socializing eating outdoors really? Dr. Vipond?
2: I can take that and, and i'm sure connor um may want to comment on this as well the original variant um, was described as being 20 times safer outdoors than indoors um, delta seems to be a different beast it's still much much safer uh outdoors than indoors but again it's not fool safe we've seen transmission um, of the variants when people are talking face to face for a prolonged period of times Um I've seen outdoor patios with those uh, plexiglass partitions that uh, Connor has talked about, and that would be worrying to me because of the eddying effect with the wind um, that, that could happen there. So make sure you're in a well ventilated outdoor space, um, not talking face to face for a prolonged period of time.
3: Yeah, just on Joey's point, um, I think the, the idea is that when you're talking about outdoor dining, you want this to be truly outdoor dining. Um, not you know sitting inside of a tent type thing either. Um, I think that's been one of the ways that people think that they're staying safe is you know you have a tent that actually does or is enclosed outdoors and you're dining in that. You really wanna be avoiding that. You know if, if you're doing the outdoor dining thing, make it truly outdoors.
0: Before I turn things back over to Dr. Vipon to say goodbye for today, I do have a media question that I would like to pass forward as well. Um, they do not have camera connectivity so cannot join us right in the stream do we know that that there are people who okay so in people who are vaccinated I'm going to resummarize the question um, are they more symptom asymptomatic
4: yeah um, you know I can take that one I don't think we have all of the data for that uh, certainly um, what we know previously with the other strains that people who are doubly vaccinated were, primarily more asymptomatic or showing very few symptoms. Um, I think with Delta, what we are seeing is that there are, uh, there are breakthrough um, infections and that we are seeing uh, more and more symptoms with it. Uh, And like Dr. Bipond alluded to earlier, um, vaccines certainly help, but we know, we don't know the full efficacy yet. And we do need to make sure that we're adding other public health measures with that including masking. Uh, so to, to summarize, I don't know that we know the answer fully because we aren't doing asymptomatic testing as we were doing previously, but uh, certainly that is something that we'll have to follow. Back over to you, Dr.
2: Vipond. All right. Um, so this is our second one. Obviously, there's still some some technical kinks to work out, but we think that um, I'm, I've i been super thrilled by the, the job that all of our panelists have made today. Um, I'm... Happily taking um, the day off on Monday and or on Friday, and I'm really excited that we have such a wide breadth of panelists to pull from. Um, so really looking forward to that. We continue to to take feedback. Um, please share that with us. We have tried to make things um, better today than on Monday. And in a perfect world, we would never have to do this again because this job would be taken away from us um, by the government, who should be doing their their job um but in in absence of that we're going to do the best job that we can for you uh and on um on friday uh, zayed uh, faisal will be presenting uh the numbers and i'm really excited to see him um we have um goja back uh dr Gasparovitz to talk uh more about modeling especially in kids dr ladha to talk about um back to school she's a pediatrician and public health specialist uh we have um Uh, Dr. Wing Lee of support our students will be uh, here as well. So it'll be a a really important um, session not to miss. Uh, We may even have some special guest parachuting in. So looking forward to to watching that, but not being a part of that.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Vipont. And thank you very much to all of our panelists today. We do look forward to seeing you Friday at 4 p.m. right back here as we talk about back to school. Stay safe, everyone, and thank you very much.